This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Mark Thiessen. And I'm Danielle Pletka. And welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Danny, what the hell is going on that I'm starting the podcast? Well, that is an excellent question. It's not opposite day here at What the <laughs> Hell is Going On studio. No, today we're actually... You're interviewing me. Today we're talking to, of all people, Mark Thiessen hey. in the, his role as a columnist at the Washington Post. We have as well a his co-author of a really, I think, important piece that they wrote together, Alyssa Rosenberg. I'll tell you about Alyssa in just a second. But together they wrote a piece called We Disagree on Abortion. Here's a pro-family agenda both parties can support. Now, Mark, I ask you everything in our quite long interview, so we're going to have just a quick intro here, no outro. But I, what was behind this for just for you? You get the, the, you get the platform by yourself for a minute. Well, I mean, Alyssa is a pro-choice liberal, and I'm a pro-life conservative, but we are colleagues at The Washington Post, and we're friends, and we've become close, even closer friends throughout this process. And we started talking about how, in the wake of the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, there were going to be more babies born, and some of them in difficult circumstances. And so isn't there something that we could come up with? And so aren't there things that we could do as a country, Republicans and Democrats coming together, to improve the lives of women and their babies? And so what we did was we spent many hours and a year going through as many legislative proposals we could find that had been introduced by thoughtful Republicans, thoughtful Democrats, many of them bipartisan, and looking at things that we could agree on, discarding some of the things we couldn't agree on, and coming up with a platform. And basically, we had a congressional negotiation in the in the pages of the Washington Post where we came up with a lot of policies. And it was so heartening at how much we could agree on, even though there were areas where we couldn't reach agreement. Well, what I liked about this was exactly what you just described, which is a congressional negotiation with an actual outcome that, you know, (laughs) had some serious offers in it. If only Congress was so good. And you'll hear me say that plenty of times. Well, we say say at the end of the piece, if two Washington Post columnists can do it, so can Congress. Exactly. If only we could get Chuck Schumer and Kevin McCarthy to agree that this is a good place for them to start, act like adults, act like grownups. And this is the theme I keep coming back to is if everybody in Washington acted like you you and Alyssa, this country would be in a much better place. Let me introduce her. Everybody knows, of course, Mark Thiessen, my co-host, his most important job, obviously. But in addition, he is a columnist for the Washington Post. He writes about foreign and domestic policy for them. Alyssa Rosenberg writes about mass culture, parenting, and gender for the Washington Post opinion section. Before she came to the Post in 2014, she was the culture editor at Think Progress, the television columnist at Women in Hollywood, a columnist at the XX Factor at Slate, and a correspondent for the Atlantic.com. Yes, Alyssa is a liberal. And Mark, you are a conservative. So here is our interview. We, just as a caution to everybody, we we talk a lot. We go back and forth. And yes, Mark and Alyssa were generous enough, I think, and courageous enough to talk about some of the things that they really disagreed about at the end. So stick with us. This is a great and important conversation. Thanks for doing it, Danny. 
Thank you both. So, Mark and Alyssa, what a pleasure it is for me to be in the host seat today. Yeah, usually I say welcome to the podcast. And I know. You're saying to me, welcome to the podcast. Welcome <laughs> you both to the podcast, Washington Post columnists, and here I am, AEI scholar, interviewing you. Now, it's I'm being silly, but this is a huge pleasure to talk to you both, and I want to talk to you about this piece that you've written for the Post. We disagree on abortion. Here's a pro-family agenda both parties can support. So before we get into all of the hot button issues and everything else, I want to know, how did you two decide to do this piece? <laughs> I think we both think the other one was responsible for doing it. Yes. But we were at, you know, I had written a column shortly after the Dobbs decision came down, basically just saying, look, there are going to be people who have babies they didn't intend to have because of this decision. And what are we going to do for them? Because I, you know, I personally am totally sympathetic to and supportive of the fight to preserve and expand abortion access, you know, where it's possible to do that. But I don't think you can lose sight of people like, you know, the teenagers. My colleague Caroline Kitchener won the Pulitzer Prize for profiling who, you know, are teenagers who did not expect to be having twins, who are trying to do their best to be parents in a policy environment that's often very hostile to them. And about a year ago, Mark and I ended up at Cocktails for our new editor. And one of us, we can't agree on who, said, you know, we should just talk about this. We should yeah. see where we can. Well, that's already that's already a difference with, you know, the vast mass of conversations that happen in Washington. Nobody says we should just talk about this. And they say, you know, you are obviously an evil person, obviously evil and immoral, and I can't talk to you. But this so, is, Mark, where'd but you this, go? But this is interesting because this is also something that's very special about the Washington Post opinions page, Yes, which is that it is one of the few opinion pages left in the country where there are dyed-in-the-wool conservatives and dyed-in-the-wool liberals. And You mean actual, genuine yeah. diversity? Yeah. I mean, as opposed to other pages, I won't name the, the newspapers, but we're, which, which seem to have built a business model on appealing just to coastal elites. We actually seek to appeal to everybody across the political spectrum and also to help uh, people who disagree with my ideas be exposed to them and those who disagree with Alyssa's idea be exposed to them. And that also translates into the, into the built actual team that, you know, that we were there to talk to each other as if, you know, I might have never met Alyssa if it hadn't been for the Post. So I think it's a kudos to the Washington Post and the philosophy that Fred Hyatt established and yes. Jackson Deal and that uh, David Shipley and, and his team are continuing. Yeah. Well, kudos to them. I want to put an asterisk there and say I still love my friends at the Wall Street Journal. We love, but I, I love do, them too. <laughs> but I do know who you're talking about. Absolutely. Yes. As do I think a lot of uh, newspaper readers who really miss actually being able to get some diversity out of their own newspaper, as opposed to having to simply get three or four newspapers in order to know what people of different persuasions think. Tell me how you two met exactly. This was at another, I think, Post event. I had started at the Post in, I guess it was 2014, and then a few months later I got engaged. And Mark and his wife, who had never met bef me before, could not have been more delighted, right? I mean, they were so happy for me and immediately started talking about schools and how great having kids was and where they'd sent their kids to school and offering me advice. And it was just the most generous thing. And that conversation has always really stayed with me, even though it's almost a decade ago at this uh, point. I've forgotten that. 
entirely. <laughs> it, it was no, it was I was new to the post, you know, I my husband who is the senior fellow at Media Matters for America, you know, didn't know a lot of the conservatives at the post and it was the kind of situation where I just felt immediately so welcomed and welcome to the post and welcomed into sort of the larger community of married people. And <laughs> to me, you know, we didn't necessarily work together that much in the years following, yeah. but for me, it established this baseline of personal trust yeah, that sure. I think made it feel very natural to start having, you know, this conversation about families. And um, when I and when I weighed in, uh, we did work a little bit together because when I weighed in on a, I wrote a column on the baby formula shortage, which Alyssa disagreed with my take on it. But she sent me some really interesting information, some food for thought that made my baby column better. So yeah, baby food for thought that made my column better. So it was just you know the little things that we had sort of encountered each other and gotten to know each other a little bit. Right, and yeah. I knew you know. Especially with something like the formula stuff, you know, I had been I spent months reporting on the shortage. And, you know, the fact that Mark was receptive and was interested in the information, you know, it's I feel like it's those little interactions that, you know, especially when Washington is socially siloed along political lines, it's harder to build that trust. And that doesn't mean that we don't disagree. We disagree about a lot. (laughs) But, you know, we, I think it makes it easier to table those disagreements temporarily while being really clear and confident that we're not compromising or giving up those areas of disagreement, but saying, okay, we can focus on this for a while. You know, we can circle back around. This is a relationship that has a trajectory as opposed to a one-off battle where one of us is going to win and the other one's going to be completely defeated. I've been thinking a lot about this because I I just wrote a piece about how much I hate the sort of Washington that won't have this conversation. And I don't think the the word is trust. I think the word is respect. You know what? You can respect people who you disagree with. They come to their views. They come to their views honestly. Differences of opinion are not criminal. And they used to be they used we used to have so, so many more lively, fun, interesting arguments. That's why I'm so excited to have both of you. We should get to our lively, fun disagreement and our agreement. Before we delve into the substance, one other point. So the way we start, we, this has been a year-long process yes. for us. And the way we started is I had Alyssa over here to AI for breakfast at our at our lovely dining room, and we spent the first you know, hour or so that we spent together, not actually discussing any of this, just getting to know each other, talking about our families, talking about, you know, our histories, talking about our belief systems and our siblings and husbands and wives and all the rest of it, and just getting to know each other. And at the end of this process, no matter how it turned out, the most gratifying thing for me is I have a new friend and and someone who I might not have known had it not been for this. So, I'm glad that we were able to come to agreement on so many different substantive issues, but this is, you know, I would just say to our listeners, you can do this too, um, that everyone should try and do this because Arthur Brooks, our our former leader here, always uh, preached that our political adversaries, if, if we could use that term, are not our enemies. They're our fellow Americans who disagree with us. They can also be our friends who disagree with us. And you can have a, if you just have that understanding that people who don't share all your views they're not bad people. They're probably coming at it for good reasons, and they're mistaken as opposed to being evil. And we probably feel the same way towards each other in that sense. That you can, there's so much you can agree on, and so much you can and so much you can accomplish. So much you can accomplish in a exactly. town where nobody is accomplishing 
anything because we're so focused on the areas in which we disagree. Yep. So this is a super smart piece, not because I agree with one or you or the other of you, but because I think that you really delved into something fascinating. And, and by the way, when I read it, it was such an indictment of our country and how we've handled some of these challenges. And that really, that saddened this me a lot. This a list of things that have already passed. Yes. And it's a list of things that in a lot of cases could have already passed. right? And, and should have. And you do a great job. So let, let's just go down the list and, and talk about some of these things. Is this and, podcast going to be, you know, three hours long? Because yeah. No, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I'm not going to recite everything because we'll put plenty of links into our transcripts and to our Substack so people can read this for themselves and dive into the issues that interest them. But, you know, I, I'm sitting here looking at a picture on the on the printout of the article about maternal deaths on the rise. Maternal deaths in America have been on the rise since 1987. I'm sorry, what a reflection on our country. You know, this is the most basic of things. And you guys have some ideas about this. Yeah. And I think one of the things that is important about maternal health care is that there's a lot of agreement that, you know, this is an argument that, you know, sometimes has been debated along racial lines because we should be clear, black women die in you know, during pregnancy and after childbirth at much higher rates than women of other any other racial or ethnic group. But, you know, everyone agrees that we can do better on this. And so when, you know, when a Republican like Chuck Grassley is teaming up with a Senate, with a Democrat like Maggie Hassan to say, you know, let's get more women access to doulas who are, you know, labor and delivery advocates who can help translate between women and their doctors for the purposes of medical decision making. Or, you know, we need a review of how we teach obstetrics in this country. We need to look at maternal morbidity in addition to maternal mortality to find out when women are injured or have long-standing health issues. You know, we do a woeful job of even gathering data about these questions in this country. And, you know, one thing that I think shows up a lot in this piece is that the federal government has enormous convening power. And so the federal government can gather and publish data in a usable, clear way. So even if you don't support a hugely expanded you know, federal program to, you know, even if you don't support, for example, making pregnancy a pre-existing condition that has to be covered at 100% by insurance, you can still say, let's use the federal government's data gathering power sure. to find out what is going on here and also to find out where the successes are, right? Because there are, there are doctors, there are hospitals that do a better job of this stuff. Right, and why, exactly. Exactly. So, Mark, I want to ask you about something, another, another part of this. You have four kids. I have four kids. How many kids do you have, Alyssa? Two. Two kids. Well, you know, you've got time yet because you're a young woman. <laughs> as much as we love them, the cost is overwhelming. Yeah. I just paid for my college sophomore first year tuition. Damn, $42,800 cash. Yeah, we, con we consciously decided to cut this off before college because we started, as we went down, yes. we, start, we did you know. this chronologically. So yeah. from, from, you know, pregnancy through childbirth, through the younger years, all the rest of it. Right. And we started debating ideas on like college and everything well, like that. Well, I want to see and another, I want to see another piece well, maybe from we'll, both maybe of we'll the two of Maybe we'll get to that one next. But I mean, <laughs> honestly, you know, yeah. if you are pro-family, if you are pro-kid, if you are interested in supporting single women, single dads, whoever it is who has kids, yeah. diapers, childcare, all of this is prohibitive. Yeah. I mean, you're making choices between food in some cases and and food for your kid. 
What's your solution here, Mark? Well, there's a, a, a number of uh, solutions. The problem we faced going into this was it was both a negotiation between me and Alyssa in terms of our personal preferences, but there was also we took into account the broader political situation. And the reality is is that the Biden administration, since coming to office, has has passed uh, something on the bordering five trillion dollars over ten years in spending. So there's not a lot of appetite. And on Capitol Hill now that the Republicans have taken over for yeah. for adding more spending. So there was really not an option for, you know, that we were trying to do things that could realistically be passed. That's smart. And there's not an option to to have large spending programs for these things. I wouldn't have supported them anyway. Alyssa would have. But we're, we're de- trying to deal with political reality. But there are things you can do. Uh, like, you know, Governor DeSantis in Florida has made all baby items tax exempt in the state of Florida. You know, the, the no sales tax on any any of these baby items. There's things you could do in the federal level to do that, like making those, you know, refundable. So there, there are smaller steps that you can take that if you're a poor single mother, you know, maybe, you know, saving 20 bucks on your crib, maybe saving, you know, 100 bucks a year on diapers. For most people, that's not a lot. If you're if you're on the edge of poverty or at that, that's a huge you know, life-changing difference. So that that was one thing that we found agreement on. And there are federal policy levers, too. I mean, so did either of you do pre-tax savings for child care? Yes. Okay. So guess when the last time the limit on that, you know, savings I was there? just about to ask you. It's 1985? Na- yeah. 1986. 86. So, you know, that amount has not been updated since I was two years old. That's insane, right? I mean, if you even if you think that... You know, if you think that people should be saving more for their kids, but you aren't giving them opportunities to do it and to do it in sort of directed ways, right? right. I mean, even if you doubled that savings limit from $5,000 to $10,000, you would cover the full cost. Of, you would allow parents to save pre-tax the full cost of child care only in some of the cheapest states in the country like Mississippi. But you would get much closer to what the actual cost of excellent child care in the U.S. is. And look, you know, we have some differences of opinion on you know, what you should do in terms of child care licensing and, you know, ratios of instructors to kids. I think in an ideal world, you know, everybody would have access to really excellent child care by providers who are better paid than they are now. We're a long way from, yeah, from that situation being a reality. But at minimum, you know, help parents pay the people who care for our most vulnerable citizens what that work is worth, you know, and incentivize people to save and do it personally. And there is, you know, there is a bill. Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania has introduced that. That to me is such a no brainer. It would be, you know, especially at a moment when uh, pandemic era child care stabilization funding is going to run out on September 30th. That would be such a huge win, not just for parents, but for people who do the work of taking care of our kids. Mm-hmm. Another one is Mitt Romney has a bill to increase the the maximum child tax credit yeah. from two thousand per child to forty two hundred per child under six, and from three thousand for those aged six to seventeen to two thousand. And that bill had some negotiations. He included some work requirements. I know Alyssa is not a big fan of work requirements, but that's in there, which is important for conservatives. And the thing that one of the areas of negotiation that we worked out here was one of the things Romney wants to do is he wants to make the tax credit fully refundable, but he also wants to make it applicable from the moment of, of conception, conception, not till the, starting at the moment of birth. So a pregnant woman can, as soon as she knows she's pregnant, can start 
collecting the child tax credit before her child is born. That obviously wades into the to the politics of abortion and all the rest of it. And so we were trying to figure this out. How does someone like Alyssa support something like that without conceding her fundamental principles on abortion? And a few things that we discussed were, one, that the people who would be claiming this would probably be people who wanted to keep their child and were planning to keep their child. And also- But you also, can, what's the downside? Yeah. yeah. And, and what's the downside? And also, you know, I suggest, well, why don't we suggest he amend it to say simply nothing in this bill either affirms or denies the humanity of the unborn child. Yeah. So it's not intended to do that. And that seems like a that, no, say, think, that listen, seems like a kind of compromise that in a kid that in a congressional, you know, back room you could you could hammer out and get people on both sides to agree. Absolutely. And and this is this is really smart. I do think that one of the most important aspects of your piece is that it educated me about some of the problems that we have facing child care, facing parents, facing medical care, for example, the number of pediatricians, particularly the number of pediatricians who are able to deal with social problems, psychological problems, mental problems that increasingly we're seeing diagnosed in children. Now, you know, you don't have to believe that everybody who's diagnosed actually has this. There's a big problem of overdiagnosis in America. But that being said, the number that I read, oh my God, 758 doctors specializing in this for 19 million children. And again, you guys are thinking about ways to address this problem. Yeah, I mean, the shortage of developmental behavioral pediatricians is really alarming, I think. And, you know, the thing about some of these medical subspecialties is that, you know, pediatricians are among the most poorly paid specialties. That's insane. Not you... my pediatrician, but yes, I understand how <laughs> that it, might be the case. But if you think about sort of the lifelong investment in a kid's health, right? Mm-hmm. That's a skewed incentive system. The developmental behavioral pediatricians, again, are not paid particularly highly, but their job is sort of to act as connectors, right? So if you have a kid who has an autism diagnosis and you're looking for someone who can do something like ABA therapy, occupational therapy, maybe right. parent coaching, because that's you know very important in early diagnoses for autism, what some of these doctors can do is be your connector to all of those people. Absolutely. And a hub. Yes, exactly. Yep. And you know, just anything that, you know, takes away, lowers the time tax on parents, right? I mean, we call out the Nurse Family Partnership here, which is a, you know, a long-running, incredibly successful intervention that, you know, sends people into pregnant women's houses and then into their houses after they have kids. And, you know, I was talking to a mom in Oregon who, you know, left a really bad situation when she was pregnant with her second. And, you know, she was hospitalized for inpatient care for some mental health issues while she was pregnant. And her home visitor you know, she really credits her with saving her life, with getting her medical treatment after her birth for some complications, but also for, you know, helping her enrich her kids, for, you know, being able to think of herself as an advocate after some of these experiences. And these are not people who are valued according to the way that our society likes to express value, right? They're not hugely paid. They're not hugely famous. But they're what make it possible for people to be excellent parents. And any way, you know, that we can find to 
encourage people to go into these professions, but to honor the work that they're doing on behalf of families, to me, is so important. Yeah. It's it's a wonderful thing. I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I, I love the idea that she was that really having a transformative effect on this woman because I don't think I don't think that vignette is isolated. I think that that is absolutely a broader truth. One of the other issues you guys tackle, Marcus, is the cost of after school care. Yeah. I mean, we all right exactly. I wish I wish everybody could see our faces because we all know it's not just the cost. Of course, it's the scarcity of it. It's so hard. Everybody's on a waiting list. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You can't find people. But for those who really can't afford it and need to work, people, there are people who aren't just choosing to work. There are people who need to work. The percentage of women who are working in America is, I think, close to the highest it's ever been since the end of the pandemic. And yet the cost of child care has gone up four times. What are yeah. your ideas, well, it's, Mark? It's, it's gone up faster. It's going up faster than inflation. Of course. Uh, and this is where we get into disagreements about sure. about spending because the pandemic spending, while it has helped, you know, we, we now have the situation where you have the, the this child care cliff coming yep. because the pandemic spending is about to run out. The pandemic spending is also what's unleashed the inflation. Of course. In a large, in a large extent, right? Right. And so it's, you're kind of in a catch-22 because we, we spent too much and so that unleashed inflation, which is increasing the cost. It's also increasing labor scarcity, and we don't have enough child care workers, and we have an interesting solution for that. I love um, your solution but, for this. But And, and we, let's get to that quickly. But, but it's also, you know, and then so you have to spend more in order to solve the problem. Right. And, and so that, that and of course, the not, government can't spend money efficiently either. So even when you do spend more with all the good intentions in the world, yes, it doesn't always work. But tell, tell us I more. Could I add just one more thing about of that? Course. Because, you know, I understand the concerns about inflation. My family feels it, uh, you know, especially you should see how many berries my kids eat and what they cost. I am practically like in hock to Driscoll. Um, but look, childcare was an area where the market was not has never really worked the way it needs to in a country where both parents have to work to get kids. Yeah, into no, it's weird actually, considering how much how strong our market is. And this is an area where I think there is real room for business to intervene um, because you know. The Chamber of Commerce Foundation, right? The Chamber of Commerce is not big on you know, government intervention in private business. But they have a toolkit for companies that want to get involved in making sure that their employees have access to child care so they can work. And what they say is you are already paying for child care, whether you know it or not. Whether, I mean, you can pay for it by setting up a really excellent daycare center on your campus, like Patagonia and Goldman Sachs and Disney and you know many other corporate giants do. Or you can pay for it in, you know, in turnover, especially among women. You can pay for it in absenteeism among your workforce. So how are we fixing this, guys? Well, Uh, I think one of our most interesting solutions that we came up with and then learned that somebody had introduced it in Congress, (laughs) but and who's no, who are no longer there, and I don't know if it has a sponsor now, is the idea solving this paid parental leave problem, which is, you know, we have, you know, liberals obviously want to spend, would like to have a, a mandated federal family leave of course. Uh, pay, paid for by the taxpayers. And there's some conservatives who try to figure out a way to do it. And they say, well, let's, you know, let people dip into their Social Security early, mm-hmm. yeah, of I've course, ignoring too. the fact that there is no Social Security trust fund and Social Security is about to get, go broke anyway. And so that's not solution. So what we were racking our brains, what could we do that would be productive that would help this? 
And it was Alyssa's initial idea to come up with. From reading Mike Lee's Joint Economic exactly. Committee report of exactly. all Oh, my God. Yeah. I can't believe that entire sentence. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I keep going. And, and Alyssa endorsed Mike Lee's legislation here as well. So, Mike Lee, if you're listening, you, you got a new fan, at least part of the way. And so what we came up with is the idea of, you know, you've got... 401ks for retirement, you've got, uh, you know, tax-free savings for college, like that, why not set up a, a parental and family leave savings account that where if you're, you're, you go to, you start out working, people are having children later in life yeah. anyway, right? You start a job, you open up a, the equivalent of a 401k for family leave. And your employer can contribute to it to tax-free and, right. and get a tax benefit from it. And so over a period of years, you can save up a nice little bundle of, of money. And if your employer does provide a family leave or you know extended leave, as many employers do, I think more than half of them in the country do provide some sort of leave. It's not necessarily family leave. It's leave that you can use for whatever you need, whether right. it's for a death in the family, a birth in the family, whatever. Mm. You can Then you can roll that over into uh, – you can use it for child care costs. You can use it for whatever you need. And so you, you set up an incentive for people to save, for businesses to contribute, and a savings account that can be used for whatever parents need it for. And then if they don't need it for child care, if they don't need it for that, they can roll it into a, into a college savings account. And so it becomes this very flexible, portable. portable right. And uh, these accounts now are not flexible at all. Yeah. She said, use, having just used her a 529 for something that she wasn't allowed to use it for before. That's exactly, <laughs> well, but I mean, yeah. that's right. Yeah. You know, yeah. you don't have, even if you are a responsible adult, you are limited in so many ways. And Congress giving responsible parents of any stripe the ability to actually move money around yeah. would be amazing. Yeah. So why this, should why should the is, IRS decide this is everything? This a, a layup that's sitting there for <laughs> yeah. Congress to do. So John Katko and Anthony Brindisi, two members, introduced uh, something called the Working Parents Flexibility Act, which would have allowed— And tell us their political parties. Uh, Katko was a Republican. Brindisi was a Democrat. They still are. They're just not in Congress anymore. They would have allowed individuals to put away up to 6750 per year in these accounts. And they're gone. You know, when, when, when my wife left Capitol Hill, she worked for years for Senator Rob Portman. There was all sorts of stuff that Portman hadn't passed yet. And she, she was giving this out like Christmas presents to people of like, you know, you should you should sponsor this and you should sponsor that. There's you know, somebody should take this bill and introduce it. And this should become a bipartisan priority because this is just a no brainer. It's something that everybody right. agrees on. You know, we passed Roth IRAs. We've passed 529 plans. We've, it's, it's a right. tried and true vehicle. And just create it and help and give it, and it it solves it doesn't solve the entire family leave problem, but it certainly makes a dent in it. And if people could use it for, I mean, an area of leave that is sort of really under considered in the system is, you guys have both been through this. Kids get sick so often, Ugh. right? And there are not sort of clearly established policies and rules for people to take sick leave to take care of their kids, right? And so again, having this as sort of family a family caregiving leave option means that you can cover, you know, the period when you're recovering from giving birth, when you're helping your wife recover from giving birth, but also when your kid gets strep for the third time in six months or the an ear infection. infection oh, or, yeah. We know. Yeah. yeah. And so you know And all parents know. I mean yes. and that's the thing. And 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 especially if, you know, from Mark's perspective, you know, if you want to encourage childcare, childbirth that you know keeping your kids to term, then you want to make it easier on people. Absolutely. You don't want to make it, it shouldn't be a punishment to have a child. Yeah. And and that's critical. And okay. then the other, the other policy that, that Alyssa is going to get beat up by the teachers union for <laughs> is, is extending the school day. Yep. 
Um, oh, the, the, amen. The, the idea that I love you know, this and, and and experimenting in year-round schooling. Yes, uh, absolutely. You know, so we have one of the My kids one of will the absolutely me, but... worst effects. We were just talking about this before you came in, Danny. Before the podcast started, is just the the devastation that has been done to so many children because of the pandemic lockdowns yep. and the and the loss of school time. And it doesn't seem like anybody is focused on making up the learning losses. And the learning losses, as we've talked about on this podcast with Dave Leonard and other people, are, huge. are reg- and they're regressive yeah. and they're racially and the racial disparities. There are racial are disparities. Absolutely. Black and black and brown majority school districts were closed for much longer than white majority school districts. The 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 costs, I think there was a McKinsey study that's more than sixty thousand dollars in lifetime lost earnings uh, for some of these kids. So you could so you could it's a twofer. You can you can help fix the learning loss problem from the pandemic and also help par- parents who, you know, not, not everybody can leave at 2.30 or 3 uh, to pick up their kids from school. It can also reduce child care demands because yeah. you've got, I mean, teachers exactly. aren't teachers aren't babysitters. Yeah. You want this to be a learning experience, yeah. but exactly. absolutely you're, yeah. these are, and these yeah. these are themes that, that, you know, people like Rick Hassett, AEI, and others have worked on consistently with, you know, in, in a very bipartisan way, and yet what I, what I like about this piece, and I very much want to get to where you disagree on something, or I want to, let me say, I want to explore a a question, but I wish that we could switch around the incentives for Congress so that we rewarded them for doing things and punished them for not doing things. Right now, the entire reward structure is centered, politically, is centered around saying no. You know, we stopped this from happening. We stopped that from happening. We screwed the White House this way. And this is a totally yeah, you, bipartisan fault system. Right? Exactly. I mean, this is something I've never been able to understand is why would you go to Congress if you didn't want to do anything? Uh, right? I, mean, I write about that. I'll you know, send you my piece just, when it comes out. The idea that you can go make a law that makes people's lives better is amazing. Is the coolest thing in the world. Absolutely, I mean, it's what they're here for, and it's and, what, it's, yeah. and it is what <laughs> the Constitution envisions, and it is doing. what our democracy is about. Okay, let's talk about something more contentious. <laughs> and I want to, but I want to do it in a way that I hope you will find interesting. The Republican debate, Alyssa. I'm not sure if you watched it. Mark and I were both forced to for televisual reasons. I was I was the person doing bedtime while my husband watched it. Okay, well, I hope he reported back to you and not just the way I am assuming that that conversation went if he worked for Media Matters, but... My husband is fantastic. So. I, I believe, listen, the person who founded Media Matters for America was was my best friend ever. We're, we're no longer in touch because we uh, our lives went in different directions, but believe me, I know there are plenty of wonderful people there, but I'm still guessing you had a different perspective on it, but... What I found very interesting is the person who got the biggest bounce out of that debate is Nikki Haley. One of the things that Nikki Haley said, and I'm paraphrasing, is what the hell is wrong with everybody? We are not going to get anywhere pushing extremist ideas about abortion. Why can't we agree on certain things? Why can't we agree to help mothers? Why can't we agree, you know, that 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 abortion shouldn't happen after a certain period of time? Why can't we start from that premise? I love the fact that she got a big bounce from that because I yeah. think it says that the Republican Party is not completely insane and lost. But talk to me about why there isn't a middle ground that we're able to talk about politically. Well, we didn't even try to reach middle ground on abortion. Try here. I, I don't want you. I, I don't want you to compromise, okay but I want you to talk about this. Okay. Yeah. All right. Aren't there spaces where you can actually agree? 
So first of all, what, what Nikki Haley yeah. was saying was not that she opposes a 15-week abortion ban, but that to do that, you would have to get 60 votes in the Senate, and that's not going to happen anytime right. soon. The only time, it, the only way it happens is if the Democrats take control of the Senate and Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin are no longer there, and they get rid of the filibuster, <laughs> and then they pack the court and and okay, and, and we got do this. that's a different podcast. That's a different podcast, <laughs> but that's the only way you pass it. So she, yeah. what she's saying is it's unrealistic to do that, even if it might be desirable substantively, because I think some, if you look at some of the polls, something like 70 plus seven in 10 Americans basically support a 15 week abortion ban. Uh, you know, that's roughly where it is. It, when you get down to six weeks, like you have in Florida, you're, you're more in the 50% range. But, you know, so, so what so what should we be doing? I mean, I think I think first off, if Nikki Haley wants a platform, almost every bill in this is bipartisan. We are happy to walk it over to her desk and talk it over. And if anyone wants sent it to her folks, if anyone on the campaign trail wants to run as a, you know, Thiessen Rosenberg, whatever, you know, (laughs) on the on the Thiessen Rosenberg platform. platform. I love that idea. Can liberal. (laughs) I think Joe Biden could run on this platform. No, he couldn't. Okay, that was gratuitous, but I couldn't. I couldn't stop. No, but but but, but seriously, yeah. folks, you've, I've got you trapped here. So, you know, Nikki Haley said it. She said there are things we're not going to be yeah. able to get done. What can we get done? So here's the thing. The, the and if you want to talk about abortion, mm. conservatives have been trying to overturn Roe for you know 50 years now, right? Yeah. And it, they it's it at when when Dobbs finally came out. It was like such a relief. They finally achieved a goal that they had been pushing for for so long. And they now say, OK, now we're going to ban all abortion. And they want it to happen overnight because they want it because, you know, the fundamental disagreement between Alyssa and I is whether the unborn child is actually a, a human being or not. She would not. I don't think anybody who is pro-choice believes that you're actually killing a baby. And so we just disagree over that fundamental issue. Conservatives are now at the beginning, not the end, of a process of trying to convince and persuade the American people of the humanity of the unborn child. And that's going to be a debate that we're going to have and that we need to have with compassion and with understanding and with goodwill. And one way you can show that and win that debate over time is by building what Pope John Paul II called the culture of life, which embraces life from conception to natural death. And so by embracing these kinds of policies and showing our goodwill, more people will be open to our arguments over these things. So I think it's very important for the pro-life movement to get behind these policies because it's showing the heart of the pro-life movement, that the the reason they're doing it is because they want to— It's not anti-woman. It's not anti-woman. It's pro-baby. And it's pro-child. And it's pro-mother. Pro I mean, that's exactly. missing, too. Can I suggest a different—see, I think the question is not necessarily, you know, is, you know, is a fetus a person? Is it a human? I, I want to suggest a totally different framework for the conversation because— you know, and I have not really talked about this publicly that much, so you'll forgive me if I am a little halting about it. But, I mean, for me, pregnancy was an amazing experience, but a really hard one in some ways. Not in that, you know, I didn't have any of the really scary pregnancy complications that people have. But I had gestational diabetes twice, which means I have a lifetime elevated risk of type 2 diabetes. And birth was awesome, but also the craziest thing I've ever experienced. I don't know if that was your experience as well. (laughs) Not something I would voluntarily do again, except if there was a kid at the end of it. And this is the, you know, but I will also say I felt 
I was so excited to be pregnant. I felt so attached to my children long before they, before I felt the move, before I felt, you know, any like quickening, anything. And to me, those two ideas sort of aren't incompatible that, you know, there is something there that I felt that attachment that to me, you know, my children were alive and they were my children, but I cannot imagine making any woman go through pregnancy and labor and delivery. I just, you know, Hilary Mantel talks in Wolf Hall about the queens of England sort of withdrawing into this private space with like a woman and her God for birth. And I don't know, I don't think it's an experience that can be made comprehensible if you haven't gone through it. Would you agree with that? No, I don't agree with that at all. Really? No, I, don't, I mean, I, I, don't I don't, but that's a, that, I think that's a very yeah. political question. But, but I mean, but if you yeah. feel this, if you feel, so, I mean, you're saying something different from, from Mark and you're also taking it to a different place, but he's making an argument about the sort of the, the, tri- the triumphalism of the pro-life movement at the overturning of Roe v. Wade. That's not the word I would use. No, but you you may not. But in fact, that sense of achievement is not productive in persuading people, yes. if you want to talk about that, right? You are talking about persuading, you're talking about, and you're talking about also trying to create a whole series of ideas around this that you both talked about in this article that you think are important. What do you think is important on, uh, in terms of your, to, to make this argument? Because I understand what you're saying right. about not wanting to put a woman, that not wanting to force any woman to go through that, that's that's not a that's I understand that it's not responsive to the concern in some way. Yeah, and I'm try, I, I was trying if, to put it in a much no, less no, negative no, way no, than that, no, but I wasn't not, finding one. I I no, and I don't I don't interpret that as unkind or negative, just uh-huh. to be totally clear. I I think part of the enormous political and moral challenge is reconciling two worldviews that don't fit together neatly and that maybe maybe can't be reconciled neatly. I mean, there's a reason this is so, you know, there's a reason that abortion is such a bitter and painful aspect of American political life. Because, you know, for me, you know, my children were my children as soon as I knew I was going to have them. But I would, you know, if it came down to it, I would have always chosen, if it came down to it, and thank God it never came down to that. I would always choose the life that ex- someone is out in the world living over the potential. And I hate that that choice exists, that people feel like it exists, but just in the, that is the sort of bluntest way I can so the say. Str- it. The struggle we, that we have in this debate is that, is where does life begin, right? That's the debate. And so I would think that if you ask most Americans, and I think the polling shows this, that at the moment of birth, before the moment of birth in the ninth month, everybody agrees yes. it's a child even though it hasn't exited the womb. Right, and though, that's an area though, of commonality. Though, yes. though it's not because a lot of states are passing laws that allow abortion up until that moment. Because the, And the irony is that in the wake of Dobbs, as much as conservatives in red states are passing restrictions on abortion, in blue states yes, they're doing the expanding. opposite yeah. and they're taking away Which is exactly sense, the wrong way to have this sense, conversation. Yeah, and common I, sense I, solu- like that. And so... Here you have the moment of conception, you have the moment before birth, 
And at some point on that spectrum, there's agreement. There's agreement that it's a child. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, when? Yeah. And it's certainly driven by science because, you know, for most people are not looking at the scientific studies or how when life begins. Let me put something to both of you that I think you'll agree on. If, if in fact, you draw that spectrum, right, that, you know, conception to birth, there's a moment there. You know, who knows what it is? Maybe for some people it's, you know, eight and a half months. Maybe for some people it's six weeks, right? We've talked about this. But the reality is that the extremism on either side is very movement-driven. The reality is most people actually come down somewhere in that, in that central well, two-thirds. they don't know. Well, so, hang so on. It becomes is, a, but isn't that a conversation? That isn't that a, a conversation country. we should have much more than, you know, how dare you at nine months? No, how dare you at six weeks, which seems so unproductive. Mm. And I think, but I also think part of the challenge, and you know, this is where it comes back to trust, right? This is an area of American public life where there there is no trust. <laughs> I mean, is that? I think that's the right word there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, would an ideal world, just putting this out there, would an ideal world be one? <sighs> I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase this. And you know what? It's not it, easy. And by no. the way, you're coming up with it because I'm bouncing this on you without yeah, having no, discussed it. So. This is not what our article is about, Danny. This I know, is specifically but, what we put aside. But, in it, but, you, but, I, but, but it's also, but yeah. it's important because our I think our listeners will be fascinated yeah. with yeah. you. And, you know, I love what you talk about, Mark. And, you know, I'm pro-choice. Yeah. So I love what you talk about when you talk about with persuasion limits. with limits. And, and, I li- and I so much appreciate what you talk about, Alyssa, which is, you know, which is at the end of the day, you do have a connection with your children, understanding the difficulty of this choice, understanding this is a struggle. This is not actually something, you know, that you're going to, that you're doing as if you're, you know, going out and flushing a toilet, that that there's a humanity here on both sides that deserves yeah. to be explored and discussed by people with mutual respect and trust. And, trust. and, I, and I think people, I think our listeners will appreciate hearing you both being sincere and most importantly, not condemning the other, yeah. right? That is, sure. That's what's so missing in this conversation. So I'm grateful to both of you, even though it's yeah. what you agreed not to write your article about. But I do want to, I want to try and express this idea. I mean, I think in an ideal world, the you know, we would have the set of policies and social supports and, you know, a medical system where, you know, I mean, look, the reason that the six-week date is you know, part of the reason it is repugnant to liberals is because the state of healthcare in this country, you know, if you're realistically can't necessarily get into your doctor before then, and it's hard, you know, that makes it very hard for people to set the cutoff and say that that's fair in some way. Okay, but then, so then if I was, we were having this negotiation <laughs> over this policy as opposed to <sighs> another one, maybe, I, I don't suspect we'll have another piece on this, but see <laughs> where we agree. <laughs> but, you know, I'll say, okay, you don't like six weeks, what about 15? What about 20? What about, where? where is, is this is the, this is the problem becomes, Repo- conservatives are, the, the pro-life movement is laying out Positions based uh, in their, that they consider to be compromised positions. Most conservatives believe that life begins at conception. Mm. Most pro-life people believe that. I believe that. Yes. And so six weeks is really it's a it's a heartbeat bill. They call it. It's around six weeks when there's a when there's a detectable heartbeat. Fetal okay. Cardiac activity because the if, heart isn't actually formed yet. <laughs> all right. Um, if if you if you don't like six weeks, okay. Well, Mike Pence is saying, which Nikki Haley is criticizing, fifteen weeks. That's that's a seventy percent position. 
it's one that most most on the left won't ex- don't accept. But so it's what, still, so look, where is it? Where's but but the, Mark, Mark saying I I understand, on, I understand, and I think you're both right to identify uh, this as a spectrum of conversation. I'm not trying to solve you know something that has been unresolved in this country for for decades and decades. You're not, I'm, you mean we're not going to solve it here in this well, podcast? Well, we we, studio we are, afternoon? but we're not going to do it on the air, everybody. So you'll just have to listen next week for the surprise ending. No, <laughs> mo, more se- more no, but but more seriously. The point is the point is that this deserves to be a discussion rather than a trial jury and execution, which is the way that it is conducted as a debate. I think that the if I heard two presidential candidates having the conversation you two were having, my hope in our political system would be restored a thousand percent. And I think that's that's the key here. I think you bring up things that are absolutely uncontrovertibly true, right? It is hard. A lot of women don't know. With my last child, I didn't know until like three months because I wasn't thinking about it and whatever, you know, and then I didn't want to have an abortion and she's a great girl, but I understand that. And so if you, you know, you, you, if you understand that that's not an excuse, right? That's not a reason to just try and argue for abortion and that you're open to actually saying, okay, I actually, I understand that. You know, I think it's morally wrong. I understand the reason on the pro-life side for looking for sort of a hard deadline. But to me, the fact that we approach this conversation from trying to sort of pick a week and stick to it as opposed to looking at the larger social conditions that create demand for abortion (laughs) speaks to a sort of collective lack of faith in our political system to get something larger done. Well, that's why we're we're doing what we just did here. Exactly. And that's a really smart thing to say. And first of all, the exercise we went through in this is one of the reasons why we can have this kind of a conversation in a way that other people might not be able to because we assume goodwill on each other's side. And two, if you can address this, then we then we can have if if our nation can address these issues that we've discussed here, then maybe then we our can nation talk can about an, harder stuff, and we can oh. talk about harder stuff and have a national dialogue on. Okay, that so as well. I want you guys to write a piece next about adoption and foster care, both of which are also broken systems it's in, here. in the United States. We talked States. about it. You talk a little bit about yeah. it, but I mean, you know, do you know how many kids are in foster care? Who more than four hundred thousand kids yeah. who don't have families to go to? These are all problems that need to be solved. And you're right. Yeah. Maybe we. Start with tax those. credit, make it refundable, encourage adoptions. One, one of the areas we were, we were going to talk about some of the areas we couldn't come yes. to agreement on, other than abortion, Danny, because I know you've, <laughs> Sorry. you we, we, Sorry. we do this we're, exercise we're, in putting abortion aside and twerking on stuff and you drag us into it. Yes, we did. We did. Let me say to both of you, and I'm sorry, our listeners know that I've indulged myself because I've enjoyed this conversation, but thank you to you both. Thank you for being adults. I realize that that's not a, a, a thank you I get to say very often in this town, but thank you for being adults, for being mature, and for thinking creatively about things that we can solve in this country. If we had more of you and less fucking idiots out there on both sides of the aisle, we would be a better place. (laughs) My explicit rating, damn it. Thank you. Thank you, Alyssa. Thank you, Mark. I don't say that very often, but thank you both. Kudos to the Washington Post for supporting you. Thank you. Thank you for the forum. We really appreciate it. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 